0: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Now, here at the Heredity Podcast, we've talked about the genetics of coloration quite a bit. For example, in the last episode, Dr. Jake Morris, from UCL, talked about his work on heliconius butterfly wing patterns. And back in November, Lynette Strickland, a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, told us about the colour genetics of the tortoise beetle. Now, part of the reason I chose these studies is that I'm a little bit biased. I did my PhD research on the genetic basis of coloration in European fire salamanders, and to be honest, I get a little bit giddy every time I see a paper on a similar topic. However, the more important reason is that animal coloration is just incredibly fascinating. An animal's color pattern can help it attract a mate, avoid predation, or help it regulate its body temperature. They can be simple and subtle, or complex and kaleidoscopic, and as a result, they are conspicuously affected by natural selection. In fact, they helped establish the very idea of natural selection in the first place, as Darwin was fascinated by the colour patterns of domesticated animals. Colour genetics were also essential for determining the process of genetic heredity, as far back as Gregor Mendel and his studies on green or yellow peas, which, as many of you might know, gave rise to the concept of Mendelian inheritance. Coloration, in short, has been at the heart of our understanding of genetics and evolution from the beginning. However, that does not mean that we fully understand it. Not even in very well-studied organisms like sepia land snails. Chances are, if you live in Europe, you have seen a lot of these snails, which vary incredibly in colour and banding patterns. While perhaps of little note to most of you, they have formed the backbone of Dr Angus Davison's research. Recently, he and his team at the University of Nottingham published two papers in heredity on this system, one looking at new ways to quantify colour patterns, and the other looking at their genetic basis. Or, if we want to get specific, they were discrete or indiscreet, redefining the colour polymorphism of the land snail sepia nemoralis, and recombination within the sepia nemoralis supergene is confounded by incomplete penetrance and epistasis. So in a double whammy sepia special episode, we're going to be looking at both of these papers. But more than that, we're also going to be finding out about the history and importance of the system, citizen science involvement, and the trials of rearing hundreds of snails. This is a real view at the life of a long-running research project. And, as a result, it's actually going to be our only episode in April. So, I hope you enjoy it. Just a heads up, the call line wasn't perfect here, but the discussion really was excellent. So let's get to it.
1: Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Angus Davison. I'm an evolutionary geneticist at the University of
0: Nottingham. So, um, we're going to actually talk about two of your papers today that have both recently been published in Heredity. And they're both on the coloration of this growth snail. So I wondered to start, if you could maybe explain why it's interesting to study animal coloration and why you focused on this fairly unassuming mollusk.
1: Studies of animal coloration and the genetics and inheritance of the colors were actually some of the first to establish how genes are inherited. Since then, actually, they've been really fundamental in shaping and understanding how we understand natural selection and sexual selection. Why on earth would I work on snails? Well, actually, since the very early 1900s and then really from the 1950s, they've been really important in trying to understand patterns of color variation in nature. They're really easy to collect, they're common, uh, and they vary massively in the color.
0: And I guess they do really vary massively, and you can see that in some of the figures in your paper. But for a very long time, it's kind of been accepted that they broadly fall into either yellow, pink, or brown shells. So your first paper was kind of challenging this hypothesis, and I wonder what your motivation was behind this.
1: If you look in all textbooks, the colours of these shells are yellow, pink, or brown. You know, absolutely defensively, have three different types of shell, yellow, pink, or brown. But actually, if you start collecting them in the field, of course, there are shells which are clearly yellow and there are shells which are clearly pink and some brown. But actually, once you get down to it, you think, hang on, you're scratching your head. Is that pink or is that brown? And actually, that's not a new problem. Um, I think I remember when I first started working for my supervisor at the time, Brian Clark, in the 90s. And uh, he was he was really ill at the time. He was in hospital. And I, you know, I enthusiastically took some snail shells into him and said, you know, look at this brown shell that I found, this brown sepia." And they of course, said, well, scratchy. He said, well, no, it's pink, you know. So people for many decades have been discussing, well, are they pink or are they brown? And I don't think there's any real way to get at that answer because one person's pink is actually another person's brown, you know. Categorizing color according to human vision is a highly subjective process. So it was always going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, ha- I had to do a little bit of that during my PhD and we had similar discussions.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I still think, you know, We call these shells yellow, pink and brown now, and that's because that's what they've been called for decades. But you look, especially look at some of the pinks, and you think, oh, no, come on, that's orange, you know? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it's just a label which we apply to a range of colours. You know, in some circumstances, there may be not much variation around the average, and others, as in these snail shells. There might be lots of variation around the
0: average. Yeah, definitely. And, and what's kind of interesting there is that the way you describe that is essentially you are doing this by eye, and that seems to be the way that it's been done for a very long time. But in this paper, you were taking a much more quantitative approach to looking at this coloration. So how exactly was it that you were scoring these different phenotypes?
1: Yes, I'll give you some background first. So actually, these snails have been studied really intensively since the 1950s, and people have observed patterns of variation in the field. And then, especially from the 2000s, there was a, a citizen science project launched called the Evolution Mega Lab. So, for the first 40 years of study, scientists were trying to score the different colours. And then the members of the public got involved in collecting them and trying to contribute to the science. And they also had to say what different colours there were. And, you know, if us scientists can't agree what colours they are, then how on earth can we expect citizen scientists to also say? So what we decided to do is to take a more quantitative approach. I'm sure people wanted to do this in the past, but now we have the technology to be able to do so, where we can essentially use a spectrophotometer to measure the reflection of the snail shell when you shine a light at it. And from that reflection, you can quantitatively measure what the colour is. And so we have done that now for over a thousand snails, which we have collected from all around Europe and got a good idea of actually how much variation there is in this species.
0: Oh, Great. And I guess it's really interesting that you mentioned the sort of geographic scale of your sampling as well. So I wonder what you were finding in terms of these colour patterns, how distinct they are, and if you were finding any sort of geographical patterns in where the different phenotypes were found.
1: Yes. Well The traditional explanation was, so if you go and look at these snails, you know, in your back garden, you might find some yellows, you might find some pinks you might not find any browns. But if you go to a woodland, you might find some browns. So the traditional explanation is, part of the explanation is climactic, that different coloured shells do better or worse in different environments. But on top of that, there are very large scale patterns across the whole of Europe. So actually, it's been found that, for example, in Central Europe, there's kind of an absence of pinks. there's not complete absence, but there's a relative lack of pink shell snails. So why is this? And, you know, I suppose put bluntly, we don't know. And that's one of the problems in studying these snails. In fact, Going back many decades now to about 1977, Steve Jones published a a kind of an infamous paper which the title was Polymorphism in Sapir, a problem with too many solutions. And so I think lots of people interpreted that as, oh no, we should just give up. We can't understand why this this snail is so polymorphic. But actually, he was putting it forward as the best example, because it's like real life. There are so many possible contributing factors as to why the snail shell varies in its colour. So... You know, you have climactic selection, you have selection for crypsis, so they don't get eaten by birds. But then also you have frequency-dependent selection, where the rare types survive, essentially, because it escapes predation. And then on top of all of that, you have random genetic drift. So you have at least four different explanations, all of which may apply at one and the same time, explaining the frequencies of the different colours of these snail shells all across Europe. And so, you know, and so really, ultimately, that's what I want to do. I want to understand how all of those factors are ultimately contributing to the frequencies of the local populations of the, of the growth snail, snail, so PNL-aryllis.
0: Yeah, that does sound like an incredibly complex mix of things to try and stitch together.
1: Yeah, yeah well, it, it, it is complicated, but I mean, you know, I'd make the argument. Of course, with the advent, for example, of next-generation DNA sequencing, people tend to study the systems that are simple, where there's a single possible explanation for why, a, you know, a particular color is found in one circumstance and not in another, and they can use their next-generation sequencing to find what that gene is. That's very straightforward. But of course, you know, in nature, in most life, it's much more complicated than that. So I think I would like to argue we're getting to the point where we must look beyond those relatively simple explanations and find and maybe come back to these systems where the situation is more complicated, but more realistic in terms of how nature works in reality.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, so one of the interesting things there is that this color paper that you have out first, it is broadly finding, if I understand it right, that you have these three color phenotypes, the yellow, the pink and the brown, but there's quite a lot of variability in there.
1: That's right. So we measured the color of the snail shells using a spectrophotometer and then used a program called m to essentially to take that data and naively look at it to see if it falls into natural groupings or whether it truly is continuous variation. And so in some senses, I was very relieved. So when it did group it, it grouped it into three clusters, which broadly correspond to what we'd call yellow, pink, and brown. So that's good. But nonetheless, there are many individuals that fall between those clusters. So there are distinct clusters which correspond to the different colors, but it's indiscreet, so variation is continuous. There are some individuals which are almost impossible to classify as one color or another. I suppose you might say, well, say what? Why is that interesting? But one of the weird things about this is, The genes that determine the differences in these colours, we don't know what they are, but we know they're inherited in the supergene. So that's a group of linked units. And traditionally, the theory behind supergenes is that they originate to produce distinct phenotypes. And that's absolutely what we haven't got in this system. So, you know, I'm still a bit puzzled by that. And I think that maybe illustrates how ignorant we are of how natural selection and maybe also random genetic drift are acting in this system.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the really interesting things you're talking about there is this idea of the supergene. And you kind of previously mentioned, like different genetic elements that might be contributing to this, like drift and various bits of selection. And we actually do know something about the genetics of these color patterns. And that's pretty much the topic of the second paper that you have out in Heredity. So maybe you could just explain a little bit about the concept of the supergene and what we know about the genetics and the sort of motivation for this second paper.
1: Sure, yeah. So a supergene is essentially a set of loci within a genome, which are in inherited together and usually you get very rare a combination between those different loci Uh, and we have known actually so for you know more than 50 years that the main phenotypes the main color polymorphisms of sapia snails so whether they're yellow pink or brown or whether they're banded or unbanded whether their lips are colored or not various other things we've known that they're inherited as a supergene but we don't know what that supergene is and so in many previous studies people have tried to kind of Pick apart, for example, the order of the different elements of the supergene that's appear, and you can only really do that by making crosses of the snails and finding recombinants, and from that inferring what order the loci are within that. And that's kind of as it was for 40 years. So what we've been able to do now is we don't know what the gene is, but we have genetic markers which flank the locus, and so what we've been able to do is to verify that those recombinants actually properly are recombinants. And kind of the surprising result was actually. In all cases where we thought we had a recombinant within the supergene, in no case was it actually a recombinant. So, you know, we've bred about 700 offspring in the lab now of these snails, many of them segregating for both color and banding, and we have zero recombinants. So I think this is saying that the structure of the supergene in Sapir is not necessarily as we previously supposed. I suppose that the extreme interpretation, it's possible that it truly is a single locus or a single gene. I doubt that it is, but but that is one interpretation.
0: It would be interesting for it to be a single locus with the amount of variation that you're kind of talking about in these phenotypes. And I guess before we explore that a little bit, you just mentioned that you raised a lot of these snails in the lab. And I kind of have to ask what that was like, because in my brain, I just have your office just crawling with snails. (laughs) Well,
1: Yeah, I don't often find... Living snails in my my office, but but I sometimes do. (laughs) Yeah, we have a lab downstairs where we breed all of our snails, and it's a bit of a messy lab, but you know, that's the kind of thing that snails like. The snails are interesting, I think, is the best way to raise. Sometimes they grow really well, and you think, This is fantastic, well, I'm going to raise thousands of them. And sometimes, you know, they all just simultaneously stop eating, (laughs) and things don't go so well. So, this is the, the snails that are included in that paper. There's about, as I said, there's about 700 of them, and they have been raised over about 10 years. Some crosses have gone really well. Others haven't gone so well, and you know I I can't pinpoint what the difference is. And if there are any snail enthusiasts out there listening, I would love to hear suggestions about what to feed them. You know, I I would go down the local greengrocer. or if they know me as a snail man, (laughs) I'll go and buy lettuce or something. I'll go and try and buy the most tenderest thing you think a snail would love, and they just turn their noses up at it. I I just don't know what it is. One of the actually one of the maybe slightly interesting things it's possible as local adaptation in the sense that these snails are. I would say commonly associated with people so we have evidence that they've been moved around by people and they actually you know they, they like disturbed habitats they like back gardens quite frequently and I just wonder whether sometimes there are some populations which I kind of generalists and will eat anything and they're easy to grow in the lab and then for example when we sometimes collect them in the Pyrenees, those are not generalists at all and they have much more separate uh, habitat requirements and so you know we're not exactly always dealing with the same thing but as I say, I don't know. Hell. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they're not easy to raise, but we are able to raise them. I think it's kind of the summary. And, you know, over, te- over the course of 10 years now, we have raised quite a few. So we have been able to build up a large database of DNA samples, all of which we have in the freezer, for identifying, and understanding the structure of the supergene and ultimately for identifying the supergene and the discrete elements within it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a slight aside, but for various reasons, I've ended up with two of these snails living in my kitchen in a tank. Oh, yeah. One Austrian and one Scottish, and their diet is mainly uh, romaine lettuce, cucumber, carrot, sweet potato, and occasionally pear, anything else, they're not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. I mean, so one of the things I've found is the adults are are not... Particularly fussy about what they eat, but the little babies—they're the real fussy ones. Yeah, and when, when you know th- there's lots of potential. So at the same time, one of the main other things I'm interested in is the genetics of left-right asymmetry, or which way the snail shell coils. So nearly all *Sepianemeraeus* grove snails coil to the right, so they're right-coiling or dextral. And I've never seen left-coiling ones. So really, really rare. In fact, I've never even heard of them occurring. But as a result of the publicity that we've had in other circumstances for left-coiling snails, I have now got two of these left-coiling Sapir snails, and we're breeding them in the lab. So there's kind of a dual purpose in the sense we can use them to understand the inheritance of the colour and the banding, but also to understand the inheritance of the shell coiling in these. But deeply frustratingly, this particular mating, they produce lots of offspring, but I'm really struggling to raise the offspring.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I believe you were involved in a big national media campaign to find a partner for an oddly spiraled snail, weren't you?
1: Yes, 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 that's right. So, so I
0: mean, <laughs> I don't
1: know what well, how would you want to hear about that? But um, I
0: just, I just think it's it's wonderful for a snail to get so much attention. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's right. It's amazing. It's amazing for a snail to get so much attention. You wouldn't ever imagine for a single snail could get. So much attention. (laughs) Um, On that, I mean, you know, I don't know whether the people listening have much awareness of what these snails are. And actually, if you're listening, for example, in North America, you probably have no awareness of what these snails are. So, you know, because there's a common snail in Britain and the whole of Europe which varies in its color, and you don't actually have that same common snail or an equivalent snail in North America. And actually, that a little bit explains kind of the divergence of the way science went in the 1960s and the 1970s in the two continents. So the idea is that in Europe, we have these colorful polymorphic snails, which you could collect and study the genetics of relatively straightforwardly. So a whole bunch of ecological geneticists went down this career path and was understanding this. But if you go to North America, you simply don't have that equivalent species And so as a result, equivalent American scientists ended up studying more, for example, Drosophila, which, of course, turned out to be ultimately a much more productive avenue of research. So, you know, there are those differences between the continents. And coming back to the snails themselves, the snails, the color polymorphism is unbelievably beautiful. So you get yellow snails, you get pink snails, you get brown snails, and different degrees of banding. You know, I, I don't think people quite appreciate how beautiful they are and how local they are. So, you know, you can have these in your back garden. I understand something a little bit about genetics, just about for example, collecting them and then recording the numbers or the frequencies of the different types in your garden.
0: Yeah, I I was a bit of a budding malacologist in my master's years and I still get very excited by very pretty shells and nobody understands. <laughs> <laughs> I think you
1: need to look closely, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember collecting a great big bag of these snails when I was in northern Spain and trying to show them to people I was on field work with and nobody was interested. <laughs> really? That's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and in
1: northern Spain, they're particularly large. So they're, you know, they're, they're double the size of your average British growth now. Yeah, they're very big. And they're, they're, I, mean, I think the colours seem to be particularly vibrant. So we have a student now who's actually kind of on a follow-up study, measuring the colour of those to see how they vary. And the, the other great thing about these studies in general is, so people did collect them over many years. So we can begin to compare the colours and frequencies that we have now compared with how they were 40 years ago, albeit measured in this kind of qualitative way 40 years ago. And so you begin to see, for example, whether the change of climate is affecting the frequencies of the different types.
0: Yeah, for sure. But um, it, is, it is really interesting. And I guess to kind of bring us back to the actual topics of your two papers, one was on these colour phenotypes, one was on the genetics. Could you maybe summarise how they complement one another and the key insights that we're getting from these dual papers?
1: Yeah, so I think in this first paper, we showed that the colour polymorphism, while you might think it's made up of yellow, pink and brown smells, actually there's continuous variation there. And that to me is quite puzzling why is there continuous variation instead of discrete colors, as you might expect from a supergene? What is kind of the wider interest there is? Well, I just begin to wonder, you know, for many years, uh, biologists have been essentially forced to classify colors. So if you do have an animal which varies, you have to say it's one color or the other, you know, you have to make that call at some point. And I just wonder, as these spectrophotometers become more widely used, whether we should or people are going back and measuring these colors and taking a proper quantitative view of these things, you know, in every animal, there is variation around the color when it has that color. But how much variation is there? And, you know, if it's sometimes pink and it's sometimes yellow or sometimes red and sometimes yellow, then in how many circumstances is it something in between? You know, And that's something you can't necessarily get from qualitative data. So I just wonder whether we're going to see more of that in the literature of that, going back to classic systems and actually measuring the color.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can only hope. And I guess that is kind of a, a good segue into the question of, what you think these papers are contributing to our overall understanding of animal coloration and kind of what you hope other researchers might take away from them.
1: Mm, That's a hard question. Um, I mean, I think that in the super genes that have been found and identified so far, I think in most of those circumstances, the polymorphism is what you properly call discrete. But in Sapir, the polymorphism is not discrete. So I just wonder when we are able to find the genes that make this polymorphism disappear. What that will tell us about how natural selection has been operating on this system, and I suppose that will then have implications for kind of understanding other systems where supergenes are also involved.
0: That was Dr. Angus Davison from the University of Nottingham, and as no scientist works in isolation, he wanted to acknowledge the work of two people in particular with these papers. Hannah Jackson for driving a lot of the work in Discrete or Indiscrete, redefining the color polymorphism of the land snail sepia nemoralis, and Daniel Ramos Gonzalez for his work on recombination within the sepia nemoralis supergene is confounded by incomplete penetrance and epistasis. And as you may have been able to tell, Angus and I went on quite a lot of detours during this chat, because, you know, we got a little bit overexcited. But there's one part that was really interesting that I want to play for you, because, well, to be honest, we got around to the topic of eating his study system. No, I don't, I mean, I, I have tried them, they are like chewy mushrooms. I think,
1: <laughs> no they're not, I think that's not true, I think they're like chewy mushrooms if you completely overcook them. Oh, um, if you try them yourself, they're actually quite tender, so I've cooked them only a couple of times myself. And you know, on both occasions they're they're very small, but they're pretty good and not chewy at all.
0: Some good advice there if you ever want to try them, but please be careful if you decide to go foraging in your garden, they're not always safe to eat. Anyway, I really hope that you've enjoyed this sepia special episode. I have loved it, I love getting to speak to Angus, and I'm really grateful that he took the amount of time that he did to explain his system to us. And before we sign off, there's just time for a quick message from Kat Arnie over at Genetics Unzipped.
1: latest episode of genetics unzipped we tell the stories of four women working in genetics in the first half of the 20th century and explore how sexism in scientific culture led to their achievements being overlooked genetics unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics society listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts
0: that episode is out now and it's both fascinating and on a really important topic so please do go and give it a listen. Just a reminder that this Sepia special is actually our only episode this month, so the next one will be out in May. In the meantime, you can find the papers featured today on the Heredity website, that's nature.com forward slash hdy, and if you want to keep up to date with the journal, you can follow us on Twitter, that's at Heredity Journal. Or, if you really want, you can drop me an email directly at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen, see you in May.